Awesome. Well, good morning, church. Good morning. My name is Christian. I'm one of the pastors and elders here at Cornerstone. I get the opportunity to open up God's word with you. We are in week two of our series on the Great Commission. We're focusing in in Matthew chapter 28, the last several verses in verses 18 through 20, where Jesus gives his commission to his disciples. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that's you to devote ourselves to the making of disciples among all nations. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 28. Um, If you need a Bible, some ushers would uh, would love to put one in your hands. A lot of the passages that I'll be going to um, will be up on the screens as well, so you can follow along that way as well. But if you were with us last week, you know, I started out at the beginning of Matthew 28, walking through the chapter, seeing how this chapter begins with the resurrection of Jesus, his defeat of death to be alive forevermore. And then it culminates in these parting words that he has at the end of Matthew 28. And we saw how the commission to make disciples begins with this dramatic declaration that Jesus makes in verse 18, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And it ends with an equally amazing declaration of Jesus in verse 20 that he is with us always until the end of the age. And there in the middle, bracketed by these two fantastic declarations of Jesus, is his command to us to make disciples, baptizing, teaching them. We're going to continue as we move through this series week by week to get into each phrase and unpack them. And what we're going to do this morning is really just focus our attention back there in verse 18 in this idea that, again, that Jesus makes, uh, the statement that Jesus makes that all authority has been given to him. And I want to piggyback it on another declaration that Jesus makes, another commission that Jesus makes in the book of Acts chapter 1. This in Matthew 28 happens on a mountain in Galilee, and sometime later on the Mount of Olives back in Jerusalem, Jesus gives a similar commission, again, repeating these ideas to his disciples in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Here's what he says in Acts 1. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We see in both of these commissioning statements given at two different times during this post-resurrection period of time that Jesus spent with his disciples. That both call them to a global mission. Make disciples of all nations, witness to the ends of the earth. Witness, declare who Jesus is, what he's done, what he said and call people into to follow him. But we also see, and you probably picked this up, that these words, authority and power, come up in both of them, right? Matthew 28, Jesus refers to his authority, power, control over all things. And then in Acts 1, he says that we, his people, his disciples, will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. This happened at the day of Pentecost. You can read about that in Acts chapter 2. But here's the point I want to zero in on today. Because if we want to be faithful, if we want to understand and be faithful to the mission that Jesus has given us, we must think carefully about these ideas of authority and power because Jesus says it's key to what he's given us to do. And this is important and worth our time to consider because as I mentioned last week, 
the use of authority and power. I mean, you can't get a much more hot-button issue in our world than that. People look at power, the use of power, the abuse of power, and they see that it's simultaneously, in some ways, the use of power is what's wrong with the world and also what we hope will make the world right again. We see, I would even say rightly, that many of the problems that we see in our world locally, globally, nationally come from the abuse of power by those who have it. And so we think in our minds, well, what will fix it is for the tables to be turned, for the oppressed to become the, or to rise up against their oppressors, but hopefully not become oppressors themselves, right? We have this idea, well, if we could just get the right people in power, they would be able to return things to the way that they used to be, in a more nostalgic idea of the way the world works. Or maybe a more progressive thing, if we can just get the right leaders in place, they will finally be able to move us where we should have been going all along if people who thought like me were in power. We often think about power as this struggle, something to be fought for, contested over. Fight the power. Give the power to the people. Get our guy in power. Get their guy out of power. We're hardwired to see power as a struggle. Even though history has shown us that the more that we just treat power as this, this tug of war thing, it just repeats this perpetual cycle of violence and vengeance as, again, the oppressed flip the script, become the oppressors, and the situation really doesn't get that much better. Just the cast of characters switch roles. Right? Here's the idea I'd like to uh, throw out to you today. What if our notion that power is inherently about struggle, about tug of war, about fighting and contesting, what if that is the root of the problem? What if in rejecting the God who is the inexhaustible source of power and authority, all that we're left with is a twisted, hollowed out version of power and authority? This limited, fragile, there's only so much to go around kind of power that I have to guard and fight over. Like, like a pack of lions and hyenas fighting over the same carcass of some gazelle, right? Because it's the only food around in the desert. And if I let you have any, that means less for me. What if that's the problem? What if power, the way God intended it to function, is more about creativity and provision and blessing than control and contention and oppression? To understand the good news that there is in Jesus' statement that he has all authority and even that he has power to give to us, we need to see these statements in light of the whole story in light of the whole biblical story and the surprisingly good news that this story tells us about what power is all about. So that's what we're gonna do this morning. We're gonna start at the beginning. I'm gonna try to walk us through the big scope of the biblical story and the way that these crucial ideas of authority and power happen. What did power look like in the beginning? Well, again, what we see in creation is the, the, the fundamental first demonstration of power in the world is God saying something and it coming into existence. Expressing his power through the authority of his word. He authors the world by the authority of his words. In this world that breaks out from the speech of God. And we see this pattern throughout Genesis 1. God says, let there be light, let there be dry land, let there be, you know, animals and fruit trees and all kinds of stuff like that. And it was so. 
He says it and it comes into being, but God doesn't just stop at creating things. I love that last part, that you see this pattern in each of those days of creation. God says, let there be, and it was so, and God looks at what he made and he says, it's good. That last part is key. God doesn't just make things. He then assigns meaning and value and significance to the things that he creates. One author, a guy named Andy Crouch, he wrote this great book on power that I've been, I've been working my way through. He identifies two types of creative power that we see on display by God in creation. One is what he calls making stuff, just making things, right? But then the second one is this idea of making sense, assigning meaning, value, significance to the thing that he, things that he makes. We see that God's power in creation is life-giving, that, that God doesn't just create inanimate objects. He creates a world that is teeming with the rich, diverse abundance of life. He, he creates creatures that, to differing degrees, are able to participate in the creativity and the, and the fruitfulness of his world. Trees and plants that can reproduce seed that makes more plants and trees. Animals who are fruitful and multiply and move about and team in the sky, in the sea, on the land. They become agents and, and, and actors in this world that God has made. And then the, the crowning achievement of God's creation is when he makes humans in his image to relate to him, to represent him, to dwell with him. God doesn't just say there in verse 26, let there be. He says, let us make. Let us make. There is relationship in these words in who God is. There is what I would say an us-ness to God that we learn here in Genesis 1. Now, again, we need the rest of the biblical story to help us understand what this us-ness about God is all about. And actually, one of the clearest statements of what this us-ness of God is all about is actually in the Great Commission. Did you catch it? Baptizing them in the name of what? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This idea of the Trinity, that our God is three in one. But the main point I want you to see from here is that the God who created us is himself and us, persons in community, in relationship, in fellowship, and the God who created us, who is himself a fellowship, created us for fellowship, relationship with him. And out of this usness of God creating us to join in that, that usness in this amazing relationship, he goes on and he says, here's why I'm doing this. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air. Let, us, let them join in the making stuff and making sense of the world that God has made. Verse 27. So God made man in his image, male and female, these different genders, sexes. And then, verse 20, 28, God blessed them. And he said, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion. He gives them power, authority, dominion to rule over creation, not to exploit it for their own benefit, but to join him in the sense-making, stuff-making work that God himself does. And this power, this authority that God gives to humanity comes in the form of a blessing, something good, a gracious gift. 
with it the ability to make more image bearers who can make more stuff and sense of the world. We see from the beginning that power is not some scarce resource that we have to fight over. It's abundant, able to be shared as it's used rightly. And with all of this, we come to Genesis chapter one, verse 31, and it says that God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Not just good, very good. Some commentators, and I tend to agree with them, they see in this phrase very good, not just a statement of God, but a purpose statement. Like the, 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 the purpose of making humans in his image and giving them power to join him in making stuff and making sense out of the world is to take the good world that God made and develop into something very good. That's our task as humans. To take the good stuff that God's made and develop it into greater things. Not because we're greater than God, but because of the power that he's given us. Like, think about it. God created wheat. He created grain. But then he made humans in his image who could cultivate that grain and grow it in crops and harvest it and separate the good grain from the chaff and grind it into flour and mix it with yeast and, and, and water and salt to make bread. Grain is good. Bread is very good. Right? Even you gluten-free people, that, praise God for the, the, the ways to cultivate and develop grain without gluten so that you can enjoy the goodness of it, right? And it's getting better, right? That's what I keep hearing. The old stuff tasted like cardboard, the new, or tasted like those wafers we have in the communion packets, right? <laughs> the new stuff's getting better, right? Think about it. God created sound. He gave us these things called ears to hear and, and, and make sense of sound. He gave us a mouth. He gave us all sorts of raw materials. And what do humans do? They take the raw materials of sound and things that make sound and they arrange it into rhythm and melody and amazing symphonic pieces of music. Whether you like Bach or you like heavy metal, there is beauty to be found in sound, amen? Part of our task as humans is to take the good things that God has made and make them very good. So here's the pattern of power that we see here in creation. God acts in power in creation, demonstrating his authority as king. He rules over all. He's the source of everything. And then God calls humans to partner with him by using the power he gives them to bring blessing to the world. This is the pattern, the way power is meant to work. In the beginning, power is not a scarce resource to fight over. It flowed from an infinite, omnipotent, all-powerful God bringing life and beauty and abundance, and it was shared by this God with those that he made in his image so that they might join him in multiplying blessing and beauty in the world. That sounds good, doesn't it? That's even the point, I would say, as they lived rightly under God's authority, they would know how to rightly use their authority. That was the point of the command that we see in Genesis 2. God says you can eat from any tree except this one tree because if you eat from it, you'll die. It's a call to trust. Will you trust God as king? Will you use the power he's given you not according to what seems good to you, but according to good and evil as God defines it? As God is the one who defines what is true and good and beautiful. In the beginning, we see that power is something abundant and shareable and able to grow and increase as it is used rightly by those who have it. That's the beginning of power. And yet where we see it all go wrong 
in Genesis 3, this serpent comes in. He challenges these very notions that power is abundant and shareable, that there's more than enough to go around. He challenges the very notion that God in his power can be trusted. You won't, you won't, did he tell you you would die? That won't happen. Why would he tell you that? Could it be that he's holding back from you? Could it be that he's actually concerned that you could figure out just how powerful you could be on your own apart from him? So he's put this tree here and told you you can't have it to keep you from the power, the influence, the authority, the ability to determine good and evil from yourself independently from him. He introduces the lie there's not enough. He introduces the lie that power is something we have to contest for, that those in authority can't be trusted. You can wield God-like power on your own independently from God's authority if you break out from it. And in a way, we see there in Genesis 3 that Satan delivers on part of his promise. That's the thing about idols. That's the thing about false gods. They deliver on part of the promise just enough to get you hooked. Okay, give me more and I'll give you less. Give me more and I'll give you less. Give me everything, I'll give you nothing. That's the way that this works. They believe a lie and it costs them dearly. Adam and Eve end up alienated from God. Their lives begin to fade away. They begin even to, as they seek to make stuff and make sense of the world, they encounter obstacles that they didn't face beforehand. Their entire experience changes from one of enjoying God's abundant provision for them and getting to join him in their creative calling to a life of scarcity, need, contesting, struggling, opposition, toil, loss, ultimately death. This is the bad news of power. The humans, in rejecting God as authority, don't become completely powerless it's just that now we have to settle for this much lesser, twisted form of power than before. Our use of power becomes corrupt and complicated. We face obstacles, thorns and thistles that we didn't before. But even though humanity's ability has decreased, I would say this, our estimation, our view of our abilities has gone through the roof. Pride, arrogance, self-absorption, self-promotion drives our creativity, drives the things that we make, the sense that we make. And in many ways, it's a way of compensating for the reality that, that our, our authority has been decreased, so we overplay the things we do. In Genesis 11, we come to the Tower of Babel, and we see in some ways good human innovation. They take the raw materials of dirt that God made, they bake it thoroughly to make bricks. Oh, that's, that's good innovation. Then they take those bricks and they make a city from it with a huge tower. They're making these amazing things from the raw materials that God has given them. But why do they do it? In Genesis 11, it says, let's build this great tower with its height to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. They make stuff, but what's the sense they're trying to make? They're trying to prove their own worth, their own significance, Make a name for ourselves. Show off our greatness. Some, give some tangible demonstration of how great we think we are because the root is we're all really insecure about our worth and our value anyway, so we prop up these things to try to secure some sense of who we are in this world. Pride and arrogance not only motivates the things that we create, 
It also motivates the way we relate to each other, the way that we often use others, other image bearers to enhance our own status and accomplishments. This is what drives bullies. I feel really fearful that I don't matter in this world, so I'm gonna beat up on those smaller than me so that way I can at least feel important compared to them. I can feel power and powerful in relation to them. It's why we brag, trash talk. We seek to exalt ourselves over others, try to prove to ourselves and others how significant and powerful we are because we all know deep down we've lost something and we're grasping for it. Or we use our power to exploit others, to keep them under our control because we're afraid of what they might do to us if the tables are turned. One of the most pivotal stories in, in scripture, the exodus from Egypt, we see that this is what was behind Pharaoh's use of his power. We read in Exodus chapter one, that the reason why Pharaoh enslaved the Israelites was because he was afraid of them. He saw how much they were multiplying, getting bigger. They were having babies like crazy. And he goes, if they realize how powerful they can be on their own, they'll turn against us. So before they get any stronger, I'm gonna use my strength, my power, my authority as Pharaoh to enslave them and put them to false labor. Hard labor, not false labor, hard labor. He launches a preemptive strike. I'm gonna strike them down with my power before they can even challenge me for this. Then he goes further. He tries to grasp at even godlike authority over life and death by commanding the Israelites to take their male children and throw them in the Nile River to kill them. This is grotesque. This is evil. This is the dark side of fallen human power that we've seen play out far too often in our history. We see it on the macro level of kings and governments. We see it on the micro level of abusive spouses and parents, sexual violence, all the ways that humans try to gain power over others to build themselves up in a way that, that not only destroys those under their authority, it distorts us. When we use power in a perverse way, we are perverted by it. This is the bad news of power. And yet in both of those two stories that I referenced, the Tower of Babel, the Exodus, in the midst of the wicked ways that we use authority, God demonstrates the same pattern that we saw in creation. He acts in power at Babel. He confuses the people's languages and scatters them. And then in Genesis 12, he calls one man Abraham. He says, come, partner with me. Come join me. I have a plan to bring blessing to the world. Come with me. In the Exodus, God acts in power through these 10 amazing mighty acts, these plagues, showing his power over and against Pharaoh and all the gods of Egypt. And he redeems the Israelites and brings them to himself and says, come, partner with me to bring blessing to the world. See, when we took a wrong turn, God's plan didn't change. He's still going to have a group of humans that he's going to partner with to bring blessing to the world. That's what he's been after from the beginning. And he's gonna get there. The sad part is, as you know the rest of the story, just like Adam and Eve in creation, God called Abraham and the Israelites to trust him and walk with him. And just like Adam and Eve in the garden, Israel repeatedly turns to other voices other gods, other authorities for the power, the control that they need. Or they trust in their own abilities to make something of the world in trusting, instead of trusting God. And then, just like Adam and Eve, the Israelites end up exiled from their home. 
enslaved to corrupt human authorities just like they were to Pharaoh. Except this time, ironically, the two stories come together because where did the Israelites go off into captivity? To Babel itself. Babylon. And yet it's there, enslaved to the emperors of Babylon, that God speaks, gives a vision to a prophet named Daniel that in such a poignant, powerful way both shows us what is so wrong about our use of power and what God will do to redeem it. In Daniel chapter seven, we won't look at it in detail this morning, but in Daniel chapter seven, here's what happens. Daniel sees these four monstrous beasts come rising up out of the sea in succession and walking over the land. And as he looks at these beasts and he tries to make sense of them, his first thought is they look kind of like animals that God created. Like one looks like a lion, the next one looks like a bear, the next one looks like a leopard. And yet, though they resemble something that God created, they're tweaked and warped and distorted. Like uh, they have wings like birds, which lions and leopards and bears don't have. One of them has four heads. That doesn't seem right. One of them has 10 horns on its head, and one of the horns has, an eyes, has eyes and a mouth, and it can talk. These are monsters. These are distorted, warped, twisted versions of what God has made. They're monsters. And then when the angel uh, explains to Daniel later on what this vision means, he says, you know what these four beasts are? These are four human kings or kingdoms. In many ways, this vision of these terrifying beasts, they're a view, they represent what human rulers have become. Rather than taking the good world that God made and joining him and making it very good, their perverted use of power has brought destruction to those under their rule and it has distorted them to such an extent that they become these monstrous misrepresentations of what God intended for humanity. And yet it's at this point that this same pattern that we've seen plays out. In Daniel 7, God acts in power. The last beast, the most terrifying one of all that Daniel couldn't even describe in any terms of something God had made. He just said it's terrifying and terrible and it crushes everything. That beast is killed in God's presence and its body is burned, a judgment from God on its misuse of of God-given human authority. And then look what happens in verse 13. Immediately after the death of that fourth beast, he says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. One like a son of man, which basically just means he looked human. He looked like a human man. And after the parade of these monstrous beastly kings goes by. I'm sure Daniel's like, wow, this guy looks refreshingly normal. He looks like what God intended. And look what happens. Verse 14. To him, to this son of man was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This son of man, this human right king doesn't even have to fight against the four monsters. He's given the kingdom by God. Ding, ding, ding. Does this sound like what Jesus says in Matthew 28? 
all authority in heaven and earth. I fought him for it. No, it's been given to me by my Father in heaven. But here's the interesting thing. Later on in verse 27, as again, the angel is explaining what all of this means. Look at the way he interprets this thing. He says, the ki- and when this happens, the kingdom and the dominion, the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole of heaven shall be given to who? To the people of the saints of the Most High. Get this, this is really important. In the vision that Daniel sees, there is a singular human given the kingdom by God. But then, as the angel explains it, this singular human's rule is expressed through the people of the saints of the Most High. Do you see what's going on here? The people of God join in the rule of God's king. They are not oppressed or exploited by this king. They don't fight him over his authority. They don't fight him for control. They acknowledge his authority over them, and then they participate with him in ruling, in exercising that authority. They flourish under his rule in partnership with God. Does this not sound like what God intended for humanity in the beginning? Here's the big point I've been building to this whole time. In Matthew 28, verse 18, when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, I think he has Daniel 7 in mind. I am the one, this son of man, not a corrupt, twisted, monstrous human ruler. I am this one rightly human, given the kingdom by my father to rule forever. He's saying, I'm that son of man, which is also why throughout the gospels, the title son of man is the most frequent way that Jesus refers to himself. In many ways, you can look at the entirety of Jesus's life and ministry and say that Jesus saw Daniel 7 as the backdrop for everything that he was doing. This is why the ideas of authority and power keep coming up in Matthew. If you're familiar with this book, you know one of the first things that people recognized about Jesus was that there was an authority to his teaching that they hadn't seen before. He taught God's word as one who had authority. In his miracles, Jesus was not just doing gracious acts to help hurting people. He was doing that. But in his miracles, delivering from sickness and demons and even death, Jesus was demonstrating his power, his authority to bring life and healing and blessing in place of what's been broken and gone wrong. People flourished under his rule. Jesus revealed that he's not just a new lion or hyena here to fight for this over the same hollowed out carcass of the twisted ways that we use power. He came to demonstrate a fundamentally different kind of power. The creative, restorative, life-giving, peace-bringing power of God. That's the kind of king that this Jesus is. That's why, surprisingly to many of us, Jesus never tried to directly confront the powers of his day. You notice that? He grew up under the thumb of the Roman Empire, and he, as the one with all authority in heaven and on earth, never directly confronted Caesar. Why didn't he go after worldly power? He didn't need it. He wasn't looking for it. He didn't need that kind of power. He did confront the religious leaders of his day, 
mainly because they were claiming to exercise authority on God's behalf. But what Jesus saw coming from their authority was that people were weighed down and burdened by it. Their rule didn't bring life and blessing to people. In many ways, it was much more about building their own status and significance, trying to make themselves look bigger than it was about bringing blessing to others. And two of the boldest claims that Jesus makes, both about the authority that he has He also describes how differently he uses authority than all who've come before him or after him. In Matthew 11, I referenced verse 27 last week. We'll pick up there. Matthew 11, verse 27, partway through Jesus' ministry, already he has an awareness of the authority that God's given him. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Whoa. Okay, all things have been given to you by the Father and Jesus. You're even in control of who knows God or not. That's a lot of power. Can he be trusted with that kind of power? Yeah, look at what he says his power does. Verse 28. So in the light of the fact that I have all things, they've been given to me by my Father. He says, come to me. Come to me. If you're weary and heavy laden, if you're weighed down by those in authority over you, if you're weighed down and weary by your attempts to try to exercise authority over others in the right way, if you're weighed down and weary by all the way it seems like every relationship inevitably ends up as some sort of power struggle, he says, my power doesn't work like that. Come to me and I will give you rest. That's beautiful, isn't it? He goes on in the very next verse, verse 29, and he says this. He says, take my yoke upon you. That refers to the big wooden beam that would go over an ox so that it could be hitched to a plow or a cart, and all the strength and power of the ox could be used by a human to direct it in the right way. This idea of a yoke was often used in the Old Testament to refer to the rule of a king his power, his authority over people. So even in saying, take my yoke upon you, Jesus, again, is declaring his authority over us. He says, I am God's king. I am king, and I am calling you to come under my authority. Take my yoke upon you. But if you do that, you know what you'll find? My yoke's easy. I'm not here to weigh you down. I'm not here to exploit you for my benefit. I am here to share the benefit, the blessing of my rule with you. You will find rest for your souls, Jesus says. This is such good news. And he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn from me. I'm your king, but I'm also your teacher, your discipler. I'm here to teach you how to use power in such a different way. Be, a, be an apprentice under me and learn from me this completely different kind of power and this completely different way to use power. Because you know why my power looks so different? Because yes, I'm king over everything. But what does he say there in verse 29? I'm gentle. I'm lowly of heart. You'll find rest for your souls. A few chapters later, two of Jesus' disciples come up. Actually, their mom comes with them to make a request. But basically what they're doing is they're jockeying for positions. They're, they're, they, they believe Jesus is king. They think the kingdom's coming. And so they're positioning themselves to be in places of power and authority and honor more than the rest of the other disciples. 
Can we sit on your right hand and your left hand when you come into your kingdom? They're trying to do a preemptive strike, right? Let's get the power before we have to fight for it. And when Jesus says to them, he says, man, you, first he says, you don't even know what you're asking for. You need a completely different calculus to understand the way that this works. A different paradigm to understand how power and authority work in my kingdom. And here's what he says in Matthew 20. He calls all the guys. He goes, I know you just wanted to be between you and me, but I'm gonna get everybody together because they all need to hear this because this is something you all need to work on and we all need to work on. It says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, of the peoples, the nations, they lord it over. They, they lord it over others. Their great ones exercise authority in like a domineering way over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And ever, whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Whew. Why? Even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, again, with that title, Son of Man, he says, I am that human king, that forever king from Daniel 7. I have the authority as God's king, but my authority looks different than all who came before me or after me. I have all authority in heaven and on earth, but I don't use that authority in self-serving ways, but in self-sacrificial ways. And if you wanna know what true status, true power looks like in my kingdom, it comes in the form of humility and service. That's how power works in my kingdom. That's the example I've set for you. I did not come to be served, but to serve and give myself as that rescuing sacrifice, that ransom for many so that we can be free. What I want you to see as we're again, week two of this, this series of looking at this great commission. In the great commission, we see the same pattern play out that we've seen from the beginning. The risen Jesus declaring his authority as God's king over all heaven and earth God has acted in power in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And now in the Great Commission, he is calling humans, you and I, to partner with him by using the power that he gives us to bring blessing to the world. That's the point. I have all power, now go and make disciples of all nations. Tell and teach them of the good news of my authority, of my rule, Call them to come, take up my yoke, learn from me. Acts 1.8, again, you will receive power, authority with when the Holy Spirit comes upon you so that you can be witnesses to this radically different way of power to the ends of the earth. A mission of global witness and discipleship based upon the power of Jesus that he shares with us through the Holy Spirit. That's the big idea. Let's take a couple minutes and just think through this applicationally. What does this mean for us? Not just to believe this is true about Jesus, but to learn from him. If we are going to get serious, I mean this, if we are going to be serious about the mission that Jesus has given us to be disciples and make disciples, then each of us need to seriously grapple with Jesus' understanding of power and authority because his way of using power does not come naturally to any of us. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. 
So if we just apply the notions of power and the way that it works that we pick up from the world around us, from the movies we watch, from our heroes in history, if we pick it up from the way our, powers, or our parents did things or the way our favorite politician does things, we will miss Jesus' view of power and therefore misuse the power that he's given us. This is why we're gonna keep hitting this. The Great Commission isn't just about our efforts to make disciples of others. It starts with our commitment to be disciples of Jesus ourselves, to be learners. The way that we learn to take Jesus's yoke of authority upon us and commit ourselves to learn from him to use power that he has given us to service, to bring blessing and refreshment and rest to those around us like he did. Jesus is the Daniel 7 king who shares his rule with his people. He's also our teacher who says, come learn from me. I need to not only give you power, I need to teach you how to learn, use it rightly. When we look at the end of God's story, the new beginning, when, when Jesus returns and he acts again in power to banish all evil and death and make everything new, we see again that same pattern that we've seen from the beginning. As God empowers humans to partner with him in extending an increasing blessing in the world. We won't go there this morning, but in Revelation 21, we see this beautiful vision of this new city, this new Jerusalem it's called, a city that doesn't even need the sun to shine up because God himself gives light to the city. And toward the end of Revelation 21, we read that even in this new world, all things made new, God ruling as king over all, there are still kings of the earth, human rulers who rule and exercise authority in different places. And what they do is they bring the glory and honor of the nations into this city the glory and honor of the nations. I would say what we see here in Revelation 21 is the most amazing show and tell presentation in history. This is where humans, renewed, redeemed, rulers who represent God rightly, they bring the things that humans have made with the power and resources that God has given them and almost like a bunch of really happy kids going to a dad who they know loves them and adores them saying, look what we made with what you gave us. That's what eternity is going to be like. Partnering rightly with God, making stuff, making sense, making beauty and blessing of the world that he's made and will renew. It will continue forever. That is a beautiful vision and one day it will be a reality. There's much more, of course, that we can say and need to learn, but I would say this to you. Wherever you're at today, new disciple of Jesus, old disciple of Jesus, not yet or not sure if you are a disciple of Jesus, we all need to realize that the authority and power and the way Jesus exercised it and spoke about it is foreign to all of us. As ascendants of Adam and Eve, our ongoing wrestle with sin means that even when we try to use authority rightly, we will still have the tendency to misuse it, to get it wrong, even mistreat those who are under our authority. 
This again, church, is why it's so important that we understand that the gospel message is not only a message to be believed, it is a way of life that we are called to follow. The gospel itself is a call to discipleship. Jesus says to all of us, come, learn from me. Learn from me what this looks like. Jesus is way better than us at this whole power thing. In large part because, as he says, he's gentle and lowly of heart, and that doesn't come naturally to any of us, at least not yet. So the call, the application from this message is this. Let's learn from it. Let's be students in the way that Jesus brings blessing and service through power. Let's find refreshment for our souls from Jesus and then learn from Jesus how to bring refreshment to others as well. If you're weary right now in your life because you feel, again, like I've said before, that all your relationships end up getting consumed in some sort of power struggle, come learn from Jesus. If you're married, you and your spouse lock horns over this kind of stuff. It's always a fight. Who says what and who gets to do what? Maybe you continue to lock horns and it feels like every conversation becomes a power struggle. Or maybe you've gotten to an even more advanced stage of that cancerous kind of relationship where you kind of just set up walls like, like, like siblings that put a line of tape down the, the middle of the room and say, you stay on your side, I'll stay on mine. All right, you have your stuff that you get to do whatever you want with and I got my stuff that I can do whatever I want with and I won't tell you what to do with your stuff if you don't tell me what to do with mine. If that's the way your marriage looks right now, Jesus says, come, learn from me. I've got a better way. If you're a parent or maybe a child still under your parents' roof in the same way, you're seriously going, why does it seem like everything is a power struggle? Jesus says, come learn from me. There's a different way that this can work. Come learn from Jesus. If you're sitting here and you're going, okay, it's Sunday, I'm gearing up for work tomorrow and I gotta get ready because you know it's a dog-eat-dog world out there and I gotta be ready to fight for what's mine. Come learn from Jesus. Don't fight for the scraps of worldly power. Come learn from Jesus of the power and resources at your disposal to exercise his power in service and blessing to others. Listen to this one especially, because this is a huge temptation for all of us in our world right now. If right now the weariness in your life comes because you're consumed by politics, you're consumed in fretting over what happens if your party loses power or if the other party gains power, hear me please, I mean this. Step away from the carcass. And come learn from Jesus. I said a couple times that we use power like lions and hyenas fighting over some carcass. That's what I mean there. But I would say maybe in our, in our setting, our day and time, it's not so much lions and hyenas that fight for power as it is elephants and donkeys. But let them do it. If they want to fight and kill each other over some hollowed out, decrepit, rancid version of human power, we don't need it. If you, are, if you are a follower of Jesus, again, let me say this, and you take seriously his commission to make disciples as the defining mission of your life, believe me when I say this, 
In order to accomplish that mission, we do not need the power of the executive branch, the legislative branch, or the judicial branch of the United States government. We don't need it. Again, like I said last week, be good citizens. Let's be good citizens. Let's faithfully steward our voice and our vote. And yet at the same time, remember, our ancestors in the faith in the early stages of the the, the church, they were able to spread the gospel and make disciples throughout the Roman Empire and beyond without ever even having the right to vote. And even in in the face of intense persecution from the human authorities over them, they still did it. They kept going. You know what that means? To make disciples, we do not need worldly power and we do not need to fear worldly power. What we need is to understand the power that Jesus himself has and claims and the power that he now shares with us through the Holy Spirit. Because the power that was unleashed at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the power that was unleashed on the church at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, is still 1,000% sufficient for the mission that Jesus has given us. Amen? If that's the case, then let's go for it. Let's go for it, church. Our God has acted in power. He has called us to partner with him through the Holy Spirit. He has given us all the power that we need to engage in the mission to make disciples to the ends of the earth. The question is whether you and I will seek to be faithful partners with him. Would you pray with me? Jesus, if anything that I've said has come across in people's minds as being heavy-handed with the authority that, that I have right now as a teacher, as a pastor, elder here, Lord, forgive me for that. That is not my intention. I acknowledge I am a student, a learner from you. I want you to teach me how to even use the authority of this role within this spiritual family rightly in a way that brings blessing and flourishing to your church. Jesus, would you convict us of the way that we have idolatrously clung to other forms of power, either that we can make for ourselves or that we could seek from others, rather than trusting and believing all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. You have given us power through your indwelling Holy Spirit that we might join you. Would you make us faithful students in your school of using power in such a different way? We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.